Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Today, the power of art to address critical issues. The staggering statistic that one out of two black gay men will be diagnosed with HIV forms the basis of a theater work called One in Two. Several Atlanta theater companies have joined with the counter-narrative project for a virtual play reading this Saturday. As we near the end of Pride Month, more recommended viewing. The film Moonlight is a tender story of a young black man coming to terms with his sexuality his search for family and love. We'll listen back to an interview with the director, Barry Jenkins. First, a primer for primary school-aged children about COVID-19. True to its name, the Emory Global Health Institute plays a vital role on the world stage in developing and nurturing partnerships for research and scholarship. As part of its efforts to address the COVID-19 pandemic, and in keeping with its 13-year history of bringing diverse disciplines together to tackle global health issues, the Emory Global Health Institute launched a COVID-19 children's ebook competition. The winning author and illustrator Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee join us now via Zoom, along with Pamela Redman, the Global Health Institute's chief operating officer. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Now, Pam, what was the inspiration for creating the ebook competition? As you know, the Emory Global Health Institute's mission is to advance the knowledge of global health issues. And there really is no greater global health issue facing the world today than COVID-19 pandemic. We recognize that children must be finding this pandemic scary and confusing. 
And the director of our um, institute, Dr. Jeffrey Copeland, has three young grandchildren. So he was experiencing firsthand all the questions, the confusion, and, you know, what's really going on in the world. Discussing it in a staff meeting one day, we decided a book would be a great way to, to help children better understand what's happening and how they can play a role in the pandemic. So Dr. Copeland actually continued his role as researcher and grandfather in incorporating his grandchildren into this process of the ebook competition. What were some of the guidelines creators had to follow? To start with, we announced the book as a competition rather than to seek out a children's book author. So the competition was open to the general public. Anyone could submit a book. We announced the competition and the authors only had two short weeks to submit a book. We realized what a huge challenge that might be for the authors and illustrators. And to be honest, Lois, we weren't sure if we would end up with five books or a hundred books when we released the competition news. The book was to be written for six to nine-year-old children. We welcomed picture books, we welcomed easy readers, and we welcomed age-appropriate chapter books to the competition. And in fact, how many submissions were there? We were shocked and incredibly pleased to receive 256 children's book submissions. And the authors were from all walks of life. We had professional writers, we had teachers, healthcare providers, psychologists, parents, and students to submit books to our competition. Who were the judges? We knew from the get-go that we were, were not the best judges for this book. We're, we're public health professionals, um, healthcare providers at the Emory Global Health Institute. And we knew that we needed to find judges that were better qualified than us to also help us. So we engaged 60 judges. Uh, These included physicians and pediatricians specifically, nurses, teachers, child psychologists, public health professionals, parents, and sometimes the judges' children um, even weighed in on their favorite books. Oh, that is important to include, to have a child's perspective. Carrie and Beth, How did you decide to write this children's book together? I guess I'll start. This is Beth. I found out about the contest uh, from a friend who lives in Atlanta. And I just saw it. And at the time, I was really feeling like there are so many people on the front lines doing things to help. And I wanted to do something to help. So I was like, well, I'm a writer. You know, maybe this is a way I can help. I can I can simplify the issues and, and also sort of speak with a hopeful voice. So I just did a short amount of research and wrote up the draft, which is very, very similar to the final draft, just in one afternoon. And then I kind of sat on it for a couple of days and called Carrie, who is my friend and a great illustrator. I just thought her style would be perfect for it. And I told her about the contest. And Carrie, you want to take over on your perspective? Yeah, um, she called sort of out of the blue. We talked 
quite a lot about different projects and I've always loved her books and her, her voice. And so she asked me about it and I actually was in the middle of moving. So I sort of blew her off at first. I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. I'll get back to you. And she was persistent as she is. And uh, I ended up reading the manuscript. I was sitting in my car, I had just taken my mask off, had just gotten back from the grocery store, feeling sort of overwhelmed and overcome with the situation. And, um, and I read the manuscript and I just it was so simple and so poignant and beautiful. And I just thought, okay, I have to try this. So we just uh, sort of decided not necessarily how this wouldn't work, but how it could work. And Beth was kind of my cheerleader through the whole thing. We just decided the process would be to do the quick sketches and get the ideas down and not worry so much about the process. I would imagine you'd take much longer. Yeah, it can take me up to about six months, honestly. But the beauty of this book, the simplicity of her words, it just spilled out of me. And with her encouragement, you know, well, the, the sketches are great. Let's just use the sketches. So it just kind of fell together. I also did two rounds of sketches. I do what's like a little thumbnail book dummy. And we worked through some of the problems, but we had it pretty quick. And um, then I just went right to color digitally, which is also a big help. And I normally do traditional watercolor. So it was just a wonderful culmination of our talents, I think. And it was just a joy to work with Beth on this book. And I don't know if I would have been able to make the deadline without her encouragement. Well, it's beautiful to read as well as to behold the, yes. the illustrations. And what struck me in reading it was how you point out to the children, how you impress upon your readers the important role they have in fighting the disease, that staying home, that their being at home is playing a very important role. And what a perspective that gives a child who may just feel bored and wonder, when will life return to what I knew it, that here you elevate their purpose just by being inside and being safe. Uh, the, the picture with the child holding the shield like a warrior against all of the COVID droplets surrounding her. I love how you describe that. That That's a real compliment. Thank you. Would one of you read something uh, from the book? Oh, yeah. Here it is. COVID-19 Helpers by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee. In the spring of 2020, something very unusual happened. Children around the world stopped going to school. They stopped playing in the parks. They stopped going to sports games and movie theaters and birthday parties. In the spring of 2020, it seemed like kids everywhere were doing nothing, but they weren't doing nothing. They were doing something very important. They were helping fight a brand new disease. COVID-19 appeared for the first time just a few months before. Many people were not harmed by the virus, but it made some people very sick. 
And because it was new, doctors did not have a cure. So people everywhere began to help. Healthcare workers helped sick people recover. Researchers helped to discover new medicines. Leaders helped by making new plans. Reporters helped share the news. Farmers and grocers helped by making sure there was healthy food to eat. Truck drivers helped by transporting supplies. Garbage collectors helped by keeping communities clean. When they went to the market, shoppers helped by wearing masks and staying six feet apart. And kids helped too, just by staying at home. It may seem like staying at home was doing nothing, but this was an important job. COVID-19 is spread by tiny droplets in the air. When more people get together, more droplets fill the air. When fewer people get together, fewer droplets fill the air. With fewer droplets in the air, fewer people may get sick. Soon, researchers will find a cure. Until they do, everyone is helping. Everyone, including kids like you. Oh, that is marvelous. Hey, I don't think you need to be between six and nine years old to get the best takeaway from that. Pam, I was hoping you would talk about the fact that there was a prize, a substantial prize, that the Emory Global Health Institute was able to offer for this. How was that funding provided? Yes, there was a substantial prize, and we were happy to award this and carry with $10,000 cash prize for, for this wonderful, wonderful book. Again, you know, when we talk about the, the mission of the Institute is to advance knowledge of global health issues, this is part of our mission. And so it's, our work is funded by Emory University. So we were, again, just delighted to be able to pivot during this time in history, you know, when we're all facing the COVID-19 virus and, and how to adapt and, and what does it mean to everybody. And we were thrilled to be able to provide a book through Beth and Carrie to help children, not only around the U.S., but, you know, we plan on sharing this broadly with as many children as we possibly can. I understand there were some honorable mention prizes as well. There were. You know, with 256 books, there were just incredible, incredible options to pick from. And while Beth and Carrie's was the clear winner, there were many other good books. So we decided to award four honorable mentions, and each of those authors received a $1,000 award. We had Bray Bray Conquers the Coronavirus by actually Maxie Mormon and Johanna Whiteley. And this is a beautiful book about a little boy named Brave who um, talks about what he can do to fight the virus. And the interesting story about Brave is he is actually the nephew of the author, and he lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a real little guy, just an adorable book. 
there was Together Living Life During COVID-19 by Kevin Poplowski and Michael Rausch. And Michael is a local author. He lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a physical therapist and his wife is a physician. We're Going to Be Okay by Leanne Webb, Ebony J. Hilton, and Ashley Corin Webb was written by doctors who are working on the front lines who are also advocates for communities of color struggling with COVID-19 in their community. It's a lovely story about a little boy named Parker and his family and how they are staying well during the pandemic. And the final one is What Color Is Today by Allison Stephan. And this is a really unique and beautifully illustrated book that tackles mental health issues children are facing during the pandemic crisis. And the author uses color um, to describe the different moods the children may be experiencing during the crisis, such as blue is scary, red is angry, pink is puzzled, gray is gloomy, and so on. So just a lot of delightful books were submitted for the competition. Carrie and Beth, have you received feedback on the book? Yes. Yeah, we've received some positive feedback. What kind of comments have you received? Just thanking us for giving a platform that parents can go to. I, some of my colleagues at work who are parents and are dealing with all of the homeschooling and all of the, the questions and just having a place that they can go to to get some answers in a format that a child can understand and be empowered with. And I work in um, a school district, so a lot of the teachers and librarians in my school district have been asking, how can I get this for my students? It's an ebook, so they can present it to their kids freely online during their online school. Also, we are working on getting a print version that would be able to be ordered by libraries, and that'll just take a little while. And Pam, as the sponsor, what kind of feedback have you received? The feedback has been overwhelming. I've gotten so many emails and text messages and social media posts um, just thanking EGHI for, for making this possible and providing this book as a tool for, for parents to use when they're trying to educate and talk to their children about the issues. Pam Redman is CEO of the Emory Global Health Institute. She was joined by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee, winners of the children's ebook competition. Their children's book is called COVID 19 Helpers. You can find more information about their book and the honorable mentions on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. How does fear drive our behavior? How do our voices shape our identities? And how well do advertisements work on our buying habits? These questions and many others about the mind are answered on NPR's Hidden Brain. Shankar Vedantam is host of the show. Here, he explains what prompted him to study the mind. Well, I was a science journalist for many years, uh, Lois, uh, as a print journalist, in fact, at the Philadelphia Inquirer and then at the Washington Post. And, and I covered a very broad range of science topics, but eventually gravitated to writing about the brain and the mind for two reasons. One, it seemed like uh, questions about how our minds work uh, had, in some ways, the most, uh, they were the most unanswered questions about uh, that area compared to other fields in science. And it felt like some of the most exciting work uh, was being done in understanding how our brains work. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, of course, was that questions related to human behavior are inherently interesting to people. We all want to know why we do what we do and why our neighbors and friends do what they do. And the marriage of these two things, you know, focusing on questions where there was the greatest excitement in the realms of science and questions that, have greater, that were of greatest interest to our audiences, it seemed like marrying those two things together, it made sense to focus on questions related to the mind. Hmm. Hidden Brain explores such wide-ranging topics from the language of babies to what monkeys can teach us about being human and to harmful notions of masculinity. How do you choose your topics? Well, topics come to us in all kinds of different ways, uh, Lois. Some of it comes from uh, reading quite widely in the academic literature. So members of the Hidden Brain team and I spend a lot of time reading interesting papers and tracking interesting researchers and following uh, work being done at various universities around the country and around the world. So some of our topics come to us that way. Uh, some of our topics come during water cooler conversations or we're having uh, lunch together and we're saying, isn't it interesting that, you know, we keep seeing these same uh, three themes emerge in the news all the time? Is it possible there is an episode to be done about it? And, and sometimes stories come to us because listeners reach out and say, you know, we're having an issue. We're ha I'm thinking about this problem. There's something that's bothering me. A and they come with a really compelling personal story that tells us, you know, here's something that's worth exploring because this individual personal story is actually a window into a much bigger idea. You often address neurological factors or, or neuroscientific factors that influence behavior. What have you learned about social influences on behavior? Well, in some ways, I think one of the important insights that we've learned is it's actually very difficult to disentangle these different worlds. So I think there are people who think, you know, the brain is all the brain. It's all about neuroscience and it's just about biology. And then there are the, the, the people from the humanities or sociologists or anthropologists who will say, well, it's really all about context. It's about culture. It's about how the social worlds influence us. And, and the psychologists will say it's really about how the mind works. It's about principles of the mind and how the mind intersects with, you know, the, the context 
in which it finds itself. And the truth is that these are all just different ways of looking at the same phenomenon. And in fact, it is the case that biology and culture and psychology are interdependent in the creation of what we think of as human behavior. So in some ways, when we think about human behavior, it's it's tempting to sort of demarcate this into these different fields, the biological, the psychological, the cultural, in truth, they all actually function together, and what we call behavior is really about the intermingling, the interdependence of these different factors. Have you ever changed your behavior because of something you learned from Hidden Brain? Well, I try and do that all the time. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, in fact, it's funny that you asked me this question because I think over the last uh, several months, I've actually tried to lose a little bit of weight, uh, trying to get a little healthier. And I feel like I've tried to imbibe many of the insights and ideas in Hidden Brain in order to be able to lose that weight. You know, ideas related to how habits form, ideas related to how appetite works, ideas related to how we relate to hunger and we relate to food in our culture and how we think about food in our culture, how we relate to having a meal, the the social components of eating as well as some of the biological components of eating. So I feel like, um, you know, to the extent that Hidden Brain is in some ways a compendium of my many neuroses and shortcomings, which <laughs> It certainly is. It also is the case that I try and use the show uh, to actually try and think about ways that I could be a better person, that I can improve myself. There's a very old joke in uh, psychology, which is that psychologists don't do research, they do me-search. I think that's probably true of Hidden Brain as well. Shankar Vedantam is the host of NPR's Hidden Brain. The latest episode examined research on implicit bias, beginning with a focus on police shootings of unarmed black men. A new episode airs each Saturday at 2 p.m. on WABE. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. In 2018, the playwright Donja R. Love was steeped in depression unable to get out of bed. Nearly 10 years since learning he was HIV positive, he was still consumed with shame about the diagnosis. His reckoning with that emotion took the form of a script for a play titled One in Two. Saturday evening at 8, there will be a virtual reading of one in two. Joining me now are Tandiwe Thomas DeShazer, the production director, and Charles Stevens, the founder and executive director of the Counter Narrative Project. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank you so much. This event is co produced by the Counter Narrative Project. Outfront Theater, Out of Hand Theater, and Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company. Who decided you all should get together for this production? (laughs) Well, I think from the beginning, we recognized that it would be important to have very diverse partners come together and bring this wonderful, very beautiful story to life in this way. And we knew we wanted to have folks from the 
the artistic space and we knew we wanted to have folks from the public health space. And the magic is bringing those perspectives together in the service of, of this incredible project. What roles will each organization play in the event? It's interesting, even though I think we represent perhaps very different points of view or, or fields even, as we've collaborated and as we've had meetings and talked, it hasn't felt that way at all. I think we're just all just very committed to the story and the power of the story to move hearts and minds and also hopefully change policies. Mm. Charles, you are the executive director of the Counter Narrative Project. What does your organization do for the Atlanta community? Well, first, let me say I'm an Atlanta native. And one of the things that was important to me to give back to Atlanta was to be able to start my nonprofit organization here in the city. And so the Counter Narrative Project is a Black gay men's advocacy organization but we're also committed to storytelling and social change. That's the core of our work. And we always seek opportunities to use arts and culture in the service of advocacy and activism. And to that, to that end, we find ourselves having this amazing opportunity to do projects like the one and two virtual reading, but we've also worked with other organizations to do trainings particularly around racial justice, particularly around diversity and inclusion. We've also done a lot of mobilization work around the Atlanta community, uh, around social justice, around racial justice. And most critically, we have found ourselves being able to use art and culture to inspire critical dialogue along lines of difference. Mm. Tandi, you are directing the reading would you talk about the significance of the name one in two? Yes, the statistic is, is that one in two black gay men will uh, be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime. That's where the title comes from. And the play actually revolves around three uh, gentlemen dealing with those facts. And Don just done a great job of writing a story that really illustrates all the things that we go through as Black gay men. It is a staggering statistic. Yes. So the play tells the story of a man who is Black, queer, and living with HIV. What more can you tell us about the plot without spoilers? <laughs> I will share uh, what I find really the most interesting thing about the plot is that there are only three characters in the show but the audience gets to vote for each character, character one, two, or three. And that is something that is very, very innovative and interesting. And the person that I guess wins, the actor that wins, or in some cases loses, uh, depending on how you think about it, is the character that is the lead, that, li that is the person living with HIV and we, go through his story, his trauma, and it's such a wonderfully told story that um, I don't want to spoil it all right now. <laughs> Understood. And despite dealing with such complex 
serious issues, grave issues. The play still has funny moments. Would you talk about the playwright's use of humor? Absolutely. I think that one of the wonderful things that we've been telling our actors and the, the playwright even came in and told our actors is to lean into, don't lean into the sadness of the play. The sadness is already there because of the subject matter. But Black gay men, men who are living with HIV live very, very full, happy lives. And we see that comedy in and out. Every line is just uh, rife with so much subtext and beauty and joy and comedy and so it's a it's a it's a laugh a minute and I think he was he was very intentional in 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 pointing out that fact. Interesting that here he was steeped in depression and yet the result was levity with the script. Yes. Yes, we find our ways. We find our ways to survive. I think, as Black people, we've had to figure out ways to, to, to make the best out of it. Right? They always say you're making a way out of no way. That's what my, my grandmother would say. So I think that that's a part of our healing. That's a part of our, 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 our journey. We have to show up with joy. Um, that's how we get through. Mm. Your grandmother had a lot of wisdom. <laughs> You know, since the world shut down for the pandemic, performance has moved to the virtual stage. What has it been like preparing this play for a virtual reading? Oh my, it has been, it has been challenging, but we have been looking at every challenge as an opportunity because this is a definitely, it's a new medium for us all. So it is, you, you run with the challenges of everyone having maybe different internet connection speeds and those technical aspects. Uh, but I, I, I love the fact that with this medium, everyone can be framed differently. Everyone's face is right on the camera. You're right, you're in it. And my challenge was to try to show more of their bodies. Oftentimes with Zoom readings, we have this idea where we only see people from the chest up. And I wanted, and I wanted to give people the opportunity to um, see a bit more of our frame um, because this is about black bodies. So that's something that we're playing with. And because we're in this era where everything is new with this medium, we're doing a lot of trial and error, a lot of framing, a lot of lighting challenges, bringing in extra lights and just really, really being a collaborative uh, group of people. We have amazing, amazing actors in this show who are gung-ho for anything. <laughs> well, it sounds like you are undaunted by the limitations. A, a, a bit earlier, we spoke about the power of art to heal. What do you think is the role of theater in the HIV crisis? Mm. I think that one of the roles of theater in the HIV crisis is uh, visibility, taking away stigma. I think that one of the reasons that Donja wrote this piece was because we had never seen Black gay men with HIV thrive on stage before. We've mm -hmm. seen them die. We've seen them 
and, and if, if we've seen them at all, that's the one beautiful and unique thing about this show is that we see them living and thriving. So one of the one of the roles is to eradicate stigma as best as we can. But there are a host of others, um, education and other things like that. But I think this one's big one is is stigma. Charles, this may be more for you. Is there anything listeners can do to help? Absolutely. We envision this reading much like I believe the intent of the playwright as being a call to action. We were very intentional about wanting this to take place on National HIV Testing Day because we felt like this work had has the power, absolutely has the power to move people to take action. And so we're gonna integrate various projects and other nonprofits and services that people can connect to. We are gonna have a take action component and following the formal reading, we're gonna have a stage reading where we're gonna bring in activists and public health professionals from the field to off, also offer perspective. So there's a take action component really threaded through this, this project and we invite people from the community to take part and to help really move the needle in our efforts to respond to HIV. Charles Stevens, Tandiwe Thomas DeShazer, thank you very much. Thank you, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Charles Stevens is the founder and executive director of the Counter Narrative Project. Tandiwe Thomas DeShazer is the production director of One in Two. The virtual reading will be Saturday evening at 8 o'clock. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. As Pride Month draws to a close, one movie especially worth viewing is Moonlight, written and directed by Barry Jenkins. The story follows the life of Chiron in three acts, from boyhood to adolescence to adulthood. He deals with a drug-addicted mother, a struggling neighborhood in Miami, and his own sexuality. The story is based on a semi-autobiographical play by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who like Barry Jenkins, grew up in the same neighborhood in Miami, Liberty City, where the movie was set and filmed. In 2016, before the film had been nominated for Oscars in a number of categories, I spoke with Barry Jenkins and actor Trevante Rhodes, who plays Chiron in the third act of Moonlight. You had a remarkably similar experience to Terrell growing up. It almost seems like you were destined to find this story to adapt for the screen. How do your personal experiences manifest 
on the screen through a story that isn't originally your own. Yeah, you know, Terrell and I grew up, you know, blocks one another, and both our moms went through the same ordeal with drug addiction. And it's it's a very small neighborhood, a lot of stories, but a small neighborhood. So our lives were just very, very similar. And so uh, just reading the character, there were so many aspects of, you know, growing up with a single mom, you know, who's going through, you know, just this sort of, uh, you know, this ravaging sort of like like out-of-body ordeal uh, that I could directly relate to. And also the idea of being a kid who doesn't feel necessarily comfortable in his own skin and living in a world where any sign of discomfort uh, is usually met with aggression, you know, mm. um, to to keep from that aggression meeting meeting you. So I could, I could relate to a lot of the way the character sort of like retreats inward over the course of the story. And, you know, and working with Terrell, I just tried to find places where I could really organically meld my voice with his voice um, and have us share the character. And you understand then why he got that MacArthur? Yeah, exactly. Well, because he is <laughs> because he is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> Great institutions and great people mm-hmm. like Tanahisi Coates, no less, mm-hmm. have complimented the film on its portrayal of masculinity. What were some of the nuances you tried to capture? The biggest thing for me was, you know, we have this coming of age story, but we tell it in three chapters, you know? And so I like, what I like to think of it is there's all this time passing between each story. You know, the character's 10, then he's a teenager, then he's a young adult. And I wanted to make this commentary on how on how much the world can can change a person. And so each time we revisit the character at a new stage, he's literally become a different person. Um, so I felt like in casting these different people to play the same character, we could really, you know, use these men as a barometer for just how, how greatly the world uh, can affect us, both for, for good um, and for ill. And so there's certain ways that... I think the men in this film, you know, exchange greetings. There's uh, the way they sort of talk to one another. You know, I, I've never seen a black man cook for another black man uh, in, in a film. Um, and so it was important to have these gestures to show the many different permutations of, of masculinity uh, within the black community. Well, this certainly um, brings up another question I'd like to ask you later. But, Trevante, you play... Chiron as a grown man. Yes, ma'am. And I would love to um, quote this line from a review. Rhodes doesn't need a whole lot of time to tear your heart in half. And Moonlight's finest scene rests on his sculpted shoulders. Mm. That's some pretty impressive praise. Indeed. All right, sculpted shoulders. That's our (laughs) nickname for you from now on. You are the third chapter of Chiron's life. Did you identify with him? Absolutely. I think one of the great things about the script and one of the great things about the movie entirely is that everyone can identify with him in the sense that we all at some point find that we are insecure about something or we are struggling with just our identity as a whole, trying to find out who we are and trying to find love. (laughs) So absolutely. What were some of the difficulties of the portrayal? I think really just trying to find that balance of that relationship with his mother because I have a very, very wonderful relationship with my mother. And so trying to find that person and find that sensation was kind of difficult for me. But 
you know, having the people that I had with me to kind of get through that was everything I needed. Like a great director. Barry Jenkins, yes, ma'am. <laughs> now, Trevante, your acting career, I read, started out with being discovered while you were on a run. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. husband has been running the same route in our neighborhood for 35 years. No one has ever recruited him for a movie. What happened on your jog? I, I was honestly, I was jogging with my shirt off, and uh, and that was, I mean, that was shoulders. It. sculpted shoulders, sculpted shoulders, and someone saw me and felt as if I looked like the person that she was casting in her head, and she gave me an opportunity. I didn't get that film, but it sparked something in me to kind of want to pursue it a little bit more. So then did you begin to study acting? I be, I not. I began to look into it more, not necessarily study it, but I was in my final year of, uh, of, of college, and so when I graduated, I just packed up everything and moved to L.A., and wow. then I studied it. Yes, ma'am. Well, one of the remarkable things about this film is that you shot it in the neighborhood where the story originates, mm-hmm. The only Hollywood features that seem to do that are documentaries. Mm-hmm. Why was that especially important for this film? You know, because Terrell and I are both from uh, the city, from the neighborhood, it was uh, it was a part of the DNA uh, of the project, and it was embedded in the, the DNA of the character. You know, you know the, the, our budget could have gone a lot farther in places like you know Baton Rouge or, or even Atlanta uh, because of the tax incentives and things like that. And there are neighborhoods like Liberty City, you know, in those cities. But, you know, it just felt like this had to be done uh, at the home because so much of my personality, Terrell's personality, is just rooted in the place. And I think when you watch the film, it bears that out. So striving for the authentic or remaining authentic actually cost you. Yeah, it did. It did. But, you know, there's different kinds of costs. You know, I think what we gained, you know, spiritually and sort of... uh, you know, the evocative imagery and feeling uh, of the film definitely uh, offset, you know, whatever we lost um, in the bank, you know, for for not taking the incentives and going elsewhere. How did the neighborhood people react to the film crew being there? Mm. At first, they were like, who are you? Uh, And (laughs) And you say, I I grew up here. I did. And they were like, are you sure? (laughs) uh, Because, you know, it had been a while. And, you know, and most of the things that film in Miami right now, they are sort of documentaries. But they're these documentaries like the show The First 48, you know, which doesn't show the nuances of the neighborhood in a way that, that I think would be appropriate. So when we showed up, they were like, are you another one of these these people? And I was like, no, we're, we're from the neighborhood. You know, we're telling the story that's happened to us and it happened here. And over the course of time, you saw the neighborhood take ownership. Uh, of the project in a few different ways. One, you know, we started to, I wanted the actual voice of the neighborhood to be in the film. So the first voice you hear in Moonlight uh, is not an actor. You know, it's a guy who came into a community center for an audition. And I just loved his personality and his vibe. And so he's the first thing you see and hear uh, in this movie. Uh, But then also, too, you know, some of the neighborhoods we were shooting in, illicit things happen uh, at night. And so there aren't that many streetlights, you know, that the streetlights get shot out. But here we are with all these big lights. And so the parents in the neighborhood were like, you know, we kind of love that you guys are here because, you know, the kids can watch and they see that you're from the neighborhood and you have all these lights, you know, so they can stay out a bit later. And so it just became organically, the movie kind of fused with the neighborhood in this really lovely way. Well, we can only hope that Hollywood will 
get better at portraying people who are not white, straight, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. For this film, neither of you are gay. So how did you sensitively approach Chiron? Yeah, you know, for me, it was about uh, about Tyrone McCraney, who, you know, is openly gay, and sexuality is often, not always, but often, you know, a huge part of his material. You know, it's, um, again, I like to say embedded in the DNA uh, of the piece. Uh, when it first came to me, I wasn't sure if I was uh, the right person to take this on, because as a director, I want to be able to put things in my voice. And this aspect of his sexuality is not you know, a first-person experience uh, in my voice. And we and we know people, artists working purely from empathy, who try to make movies about others, and, you know, that can only get you so far. But I felt like, as an active ally, if I could preserve Terrell's voice and be respectful of it, that I could wed that with this sort of active empathy and get to a place where I could take authorship over the piece. And so Terrell and I talked about it over the course of about six months. And once I got to a place of comfort with it, that I felt like, okay, that I can actually, like, I can do right by Terrell, preserve his words, preserve his intent, and take ownership of it. I never thought about it again after that point. Mm. And at that point, I was just making a movie about characters with this one aspect of their identity amongst many others, because it's a very intersectional film to me. Well, one would hope that we could reach a point where we have enough shared human understanding Mm -hmm. that we can tell stories Mm or even approach or approximate empathy without being mm-hmm. of that background. Mm-hmm. Trevante, what was it like portraying a gay man? Had you ever played a gay character before? No, ma'am, I have not, but I I don't know. I, I found myself, I guess, ignorant to the fact that there is a difference. You know, uh, I feel like, I said often, but I feel like if I was, I mean, I could, I would be the same exact way if I was born loving men. I just so happened to be born loving women. So I felt that, I mean, it was just really about me trusting the material and trusting it very and coming to that understanding. I like something I read that you said, Barry, about universality and the specifics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first place this film played was the Telluride Film Festival, which could not be further removed. Not exactly, a whole lot but of black people, exactly, and a whole lot of white people. Uh, and, and from a different different class, a different, whole different milieu than the people in this film. And yet, I, had to, I held grown adults in my arms as they sobbed after screenings of this film. Uh, and tell you, right, uh, because people, I think because of the specificity, you know, this is a very particular person from a very particular block in a very particular city. I think anyone who's a very particular person from any particular block, from any particular city, can identify with what that feels like to have this out-of-body experience, you know, to not feel whole in your own body. And it just gets into people in this way. And and I do think that when you drill down to the essence of things, like in this very specific way, it opens up this whole well, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like if, if you can see that person, then you can see me. That's kind of what I like to think is, is the experience that people are having. Well, earlier when you mentioned, have you ever seen a black man cooking for another black man? Mm-hmm. That brings me to this. In one interview, you said that with your work, you want to create productive, not positive Mm -hmm. images Mm -hmm. of black people. Why that distinction? Uh, I feel like sometimes uh, when the mission is to create something that's positive, 
you tend to get away from some aspect that's authentic because often there are there are very ugly dark things uh, in authenticity and and I feel like if it's dark enough and if it's authentic enough you might not you might not necessarily get to the end of the story and and be at a place or arrive at a place that is positive but I think as so long as you're taking steps to get away from the darkness those things can be productive and I feel like that's much more like real life you know I don't know too many truly happy endings you know but I know people who are living thoughtful, productive lives, you know, and there's a happiness in that, you know. I don't think productive imagery isn't positive, but I do think the the opposite can often be true, where the, this push towards overt positivity sort of gets away from dealing with some of the, the truth and, like, the, the, the authenticity of, of actual lived experiences. Not everyone is Dr. King. Not everyone is Dr. King, but I would even uh, opine that, you know, you watch Selma, and that's a movie that's more productive than positive, you know, because, you know, uh, I even went into some aspects, some darker aspects of the movement and of Dr. King's life, so which I think is, is very productive because some kid watching Selma is going to realize, oh, what, Dr. King smokes cigarettes too? Maybe I'm not that horrible a person, you know. <laughs> you know, and 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 Dr. King ultimately, I think, quit cigarettes, and so maybe you can overcome those things, but... But I think we need to have these well-rounded depictions of our heroes, you know, which are often productive and not positive. Director Barry Jenkins and actor Trevante Rhodes discussing Moonlight. The film won the Oscar for Best Motion Picture in 2017. Moonlight is streaming on Netflix and it's on several lists of recommended viewing for Pride and Black Lives Matter. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with harpist Angelica Hairston. She'll tell us how 11 black musicians will use the power of music to respond to racial injustice during this time of COVID-19. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.